You're listening to Reframed, the Power of Perspective podcast, and I'm your host, Carly Marquier. As both a Christian counselor and communicator, I want to equip you with the tools and truths that renew your mind and empower your soul. As we explore popular topics influencing our perspectives, I want to offer practical techniques for reframing unhealthy thinking patterns and provide step-by-step pathways for emotional and spiritual health. You know, this process of untangling our automatic thoughts and attitudes is not always easy, but thankfully God's word gives us instruction on how to reframe our thoughts, renew our minds, and redeem our perspectives in light of the gospel. It is this framework we will use to dispute discouragement, eliminate emotional reasoning, and empower our pursuit of abundant life. So are you ready? Let us explore our current perspectives, expose distortions we have come to believe, and grow deeper in our understanding of God's transforming power. Hello and welcome back to Reframed. I'm so excited to be jumping back into some important conversations with you guys as we look back at what is influencing our perspective and how do we reframe that in light of the gospel. Over the next several episodes, this series, I want to dive into a series of topics that surround mental health and its impact on our perspectives of ourselves, of others, and of God. Over the years with both my ministry and clinical experience as a therapist, I have heard far too many stories that reflect the significant disconnect between our Christian living and our discipleship with this component of emotional well-being. Maybe you too have experienced the distortions of religious culture and have been left with questions about how your theology is meant to inform your emotional experiences through life. You are not alone. My hope is that through looking back to scripture and to the information provided through evidence-based therapeutic practices, we will have a deeper understanding of the heart of God and a new awareness of how we can better steward our emotional health. So let's jump in to some popular discussions by first defining some terms and clarifying misconceptions. Today's episode I've entitled Four Myths You May Still Believe About Mental Health because I think it's important for us to stop. Um, Before we dive into deeper topics that surround mental health, we need to understand what are we currently believing about mental health and what is true and not true, both from a scientific perspective and from a biblical perspective. So I want to start off with defining some terms. One of the major reasons I felt called into the mental health field in general was because I met far too many men and women, brothers and sisters, who were struggling secretly with emotional distress due to their Christian upbringing. And I'm not saying this is for everybody. Maybe this is not your experience, but for some it is. Sadly, so many people have been taught that their pain is a taboo topic or a measurement of their spiritual immaturity. And even today, I see this pattern all too frequently in the church culture, and frankly, it is a dangerous ideology. So to clarify some terms, when I say mental health, I want to give a definition for that. Mental health includes our emotional, psychological, and social well-being. It affects how we think, feel, and act. It also helps us determine how we handle stress, relate to others, and make choices. Just like physical health, our emotional health impacts our lives in countless ways. When we are physically sick, we acknowledge that our body needs rest and adequate treatment, right? Yet, why is it that we are so still reluctant to tend to our emotional needs? I 
according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, emotional distress such as anxiety affects over 40 million adults, with only 36% receiving treatment. Additionally, depression, the leading disability in ages 15 to 33, affects 16.1 million individuals each year. Since 2016, suicide has been the second leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 10 and 34, and the fourth leading cause of death among individuals between the ages of 35 and 54. This is something we cannot look past, right? One in five people experience a mental health issue at some point in their life. Here's my point in all of these statistics. Emotional distress exists. Emotional health is real, regardless of whether we want to talk about it or not. But by not talking about it, many of us feel invalidated, stuck in isolation, and in spiritual doubt. So I want to bring voice to this conversation that must be talked about. Although there seems to be a continual progression towards positive change in mental health initiatives within Christian circles, there is still much work to be done due to the unbiblical beliefs associated with Christianity and mental health. So I want to look at just a few of these common misbeliefs that many of us still may hold and offer an integrated perspective that may help us to advance the gospel and our emotional stewardship as believers. Okay, so let's just jump right into it and talk about these myths that we may still believe. Number one, Christians should not struggle with emotional distress. I don't know if you've ever said this to yourself or maybe had this internal dialogue of, why am I struggling? Because I'm a Christian, you know, and I, I've been a a believer for several, several years. And this still is this back-ended thought um, that creates a lot of shame and a lot of frustration with any type of emotional distress that I experience. You know, even though there's a lot of factors to consider when we're in a state of struggle, this kind of misbelief directly attacks our identity as believers, right? And the understanding that we are still human. When we begin to believe that the presence of struggle separates us from our security in Christ, we will lose faith, right? The truth is Christianity is not a cure-all. Asking Christ into our hearts and stepping into a relationship with him does not take away our pain or negate the temptations that are in this world every day. Something that I have been learning in a new way recently is that God's salvation from sin does not take away the effects of sin in the world or our sinful nature. Rather, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, we are equipped to persevere by grace and find victory in our new identity as Christ's child. We are saved from the penalty of our sin, past, present, and future. If there's anything that you can take away from this one, I want you to hear me say this. Struggle is part of being human. It's okay to not be okay. This is why again and again, scripture tells stories of imperfect men and women of God who were seen by God, loved by God, and met in their weakness, discouragement, and sin. Scripture holds countless stories of bold believers who faced isolation, imprisonment, depression, and grief despite their faithfulness to our heavenly he said it himself in John 16:33 that in this world we will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world i think there's one misconception that we hold on to in the christian culture is that 
by being a Christian, everything is supposed to be okay. And that is not a promise of God. That is not seen in scripture anywhere. It's quite the opposite, right? Jesus reminds us that this world is broken. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are broken because of sin. But in Christ, we have abundant life. In Christ, we have the hope of eternity, the redemption of our souls, and the redemption of our bodies. So to believe that we are exempt from struggle or even sin because we have been saved sets us up for discouragement and shame, right? Salvation does not stop struggle, but rather it provides us as believers eternal protection and perspective. Having walked through my own share of personal sin and situational struggles, I have had to press into the promises found in scripture that speak against this exact statement. Romans 8 has become a theme song for my story. In Romans 8, 1, it says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. This chapter in Romans goes on to recount the weakness of our humanity and the mighty love of God who cannot be taken from those who have placed their trust in him. You see, God sees our struggle. He knows our sin. This is why he gave his very own son in the first place. When we think about this, and I don't know why, but recently I've been focused on this new perspective of the gospel that Christ didn't love me after I came to him and repented, but he loved me while I was yet a sinner, when I was still focused on myself. And even today, some days I can be still focused on myself. I can be struggling with my emotions or my discontentment in life. And God still loves me. My weakness and my emotional inability to understand God and his sovereignty does not make him run from me. It's quite the opposite. He runs towards me. His compassion is for me and for you. And so with this mindset, right, the condition of the human heart, knowing it's fallen, it's broken, it's weak, yet the spirit of God renews our minds and empowers our perspective despite pain and feelings of shame. So with this perspective, we can hold fast to the safety of our salvation and to and seeking the invitation of the Holy Spirit in our hearts daily as we patiently wait for the redemption of our souls. And this is what I want to learn, right? To not hold um, this very rigid view that I can't struggle if I'm a Christian, but that in my struggling, in my weakness, right, in our collective lack of ability to measure up to God's perfection, we can be convicted and comforted when we are weary in heart by trusting in the tenderness of our Father. So by renewing our minds in this truth and changing our perspective from this very rigid belief that we have to be okay all the time, we live differently, right? First, we we are more honest, one, with ourselves, and two, with others around us. And also, in addition to being more honest with myself and others, I think what this new mentality, this new belief of, if I'm a Christian and I'm struggling, what is that telling me? You know, it's it's very humbling to be able to acknowledge where we fall short and where we don't have it all together. And I think as a collective, right, um, 
in general, the Christian church isn't known for their vulnerability in exposing the fact that we are still human. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I don't sin anymore or struggle with certain things. It's that my focus is to seek holiness. My focus is to be like Christ. And in that, it's hard. And for many of us, I think maybe we don't acknowledge that or we feel shame for believing that. So we just don't talk about it. And so there's this beauty that comes with acknowledging our weakness and saying, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian and I believe in God, but sometimes I struggle with my faith and sometimes I struggle with depression and sometimes I struggle with not feeling loved by God or not receiving the love from God or the grace from God that I know he says he gives me. So let's start talking about that, right? Let's open the conversation of, you know, Hey, I'm a Christian, but I'm also struggling. And where do I go when that happens? I go back to God's word and I reframe my perspective to realize that God loves me. He is for me. His spirit is in me as I come to him and yield to him. Okay, so as much as I want to keep talking about myth number one, I have to move on to myth number two, and that is mental health is not mentioned in scripture. I often hear this in combination with discrediting emotional stewardship as believers, etc., but this statement holds a limited understanding of applied theology. And I say that in tenderness because I understand that the New Testament does not discuss mental illness outright. But if we're using that logic, we will have to discredit all scientific advancements not mentioned in scripture, right? Application of scripture must cross the bridge of interpretation. The Bible was not written to the 21st century North American. So understandably, there will be limitations to our cultural application. But we have to look at the scientific advancements in psychology, right? We have gained incredible discoveries in neuroscience and in psychological research, which have foundations for psychological and scientific reliability. I honestly think that this disconnection happens very frequently because of the evolution of psychotherapy and the way in which psychological advancements can be traced back to like Sigmund Freud and less conservative views of human development. The religious climate during that time period was very, very much against the psychosexual perspective, right, of Freud and the way in which he perceived things. But over hundreds of years later, we continue to debate different theories of human behavior and overlook kind of the evidence-based practice that is quite in line with scripture, right? So although the term mental health was not coined until, I don't think it was mid-19th century, the attention to emotional, psychological, and social well-being for human beings began at the creation of the world. And so I want to just take a quick view of this in scripture. Just look back to the accounts of God, who is not distant from emotions or disconnected from the importance of psychological or social well-being. In Genesis 2, God introduces the practice of rest, number one, and he emphasizes the importance of relationship by creating Adam and Eve. These are important things that we see as a meta theme, right, throughout scripture of relational connection with depth, with emotion. There is distress and pain we look at the story of Noah's Ark, and that's the first time emotions are mentioned in scripture. It says that God was deeply grieved when he looked at what was happening in the world. 
From a scriptural perspective, we see an emphasis on emotions throughout Old and New Testament. David used much of the Psalms to process his pain. Jesus embodied the role of counselor through the Gospels, embracing those who needed physical and emotional support. Additionally, things like suicide are mentioned over six times in Scripture between the Old and New Testament. The most known passage in Matthew 27, which I'll talk about in a later episode in detail, But why is all of this significant? Because it validates the history of hopelessness and emotional connection from since the beginning of time. I'm often brought back to Jesus's words in Matthew 22, 37, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I want to break this down for us really quick as a emphasis to be able to see the scriptures as holistic in nature. When we look at this word, love the Lord with God with all your heart, it comes from a Greek word, which I'm going to try to pronounce. I might get this wrong for those of you that know Greek. (laughs) It's cardia, the affective center of our being. This is our emotional space and capacity. It's what makes us feel and desire. In addition, the word soul in this passage is connected to the English word psyche, psychology, soul, a person's distinct identity. This is also related to God's breath in us, right? And so we also then can see how both of these soul and heart connect to mind, which is our thought process, right? This dialectic, right? Both sides of our brain working together across holding space for emotions and logic. And this is so holistic and so in line with so many practices that we see in psychology and therapy today. This command towards loving God is not just for our intellect, just know and do, but our whole being, our wills, our desire, our thoughts are all connected to being fully found in Christ. Jesus doesn't want just our obedience He wants our hearts. He wants our affection. He wants a relationship with us. And this connects emotional health and wellness into scripture so beautifully. But I want to also caveat this because by acknowledging our emotional capacity, we align our whole selves to the Lordship of Christ and acknowledge our neediness before a compassionate and loving God. But I think We tend to fear the overemphasis of emotion, maybe, due to the cultural norms that just say, you know, follow your heart and your feelings predict your reality. I'm not saying that. But in this passage, specifically in scripture, we see that to acknowledge our emotions and to to align our emotions with God, to realize, like, when I'm not feeling right, when I'm emotionally dysregulated, maybe God is coming to me in that. Maybe my emotions, the way God built my body, is telling me something about myself and telling me something about God. So it's just a different way to look at it, um, that we can kind of connect our emotions to this idea of loving God and understanding Him more. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Okay, so let's move on um, to myth number three. My feelings don't matter to God. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard this and maybe even at times felt this way. But when we come to understand that mental health is, is directly connected to our spiritual health, we are faced with a new understanding of the heart of God. And so when people say that my feelings don't matter to God, I ask them, who told you that? Because what I think is happening, what I've seen happen is when we have our feelings invalidated by people in our lives, right? This goes all the way back to kind of family systems work and negative experiences in relationship. We become accustomed to invalidation and then we take that and we place it on God and then assume that God feels the same way other people have. This is never a statement associated with scripture though. And from my study in theology, I am certain of at least one thing and it's this, you matter to God. I matter to God. Our feelings and all. I believe this false assumption is based on two primary sources, right? This distorted view of God and the experiences of our invalidation, which is a struggle because it creates this sense of doubt and fear with our feelings. We have started to place the invalidation of our experiences onto the image of God. And when we do that, we assume that God does not respond to our emotional distress or he responds like other people have in our life. And this is drastic in the way it impacts our belief of our feelings and our faith. We maybe tend to pull away from God or hide from God if we have certain feelings because we think God um, somehow is neglectful of those emotions. But that's not what we see in scripture. We are walking away from an image of God that has been damaged by invalidation. But Let's try to reframe this. I want to ask you a question. What if God is listening? What if he does actually care? What would that change in the way that we experience and feel our emotions? What if our struggle is not a result of God's lack of goodness or attention to our needs, but rather an outcome of our brokenness, which will be redeemed, if not on this side of heaven, in heaven one day? I think my feelings, I'm coming to learn this, but that my feelings are so an evidence of my need for God, my need for consistent care and love and graciousness. You know, we, we oftentimes feel lonely in our feelings because no one, no one, no great individual, no one that you love fully on this earth can give you the love that you so desire. But God is that uh, for us. It says in Psalm 34, that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. He does not walk away from us in our pain, but he calls us to our own weakness in light of his strength. You know, our feelings are real. When we feel a feeling, it's a real feeling, right? But it might not be always rational. It might not be based on truth. But knowing that God loves us, even when we're messy and undone, helps us to be honest with our emotions. And it allows God into the raw feelings that we might be fighting. I believe this is why scripture reminds us repeatedly to pray and worship. Right in James 5, it says, are you suffering? Then pray. 
Even when emotions are deep and pain is present, we can rejoice in the truth that God is going to make all things new one day. The prayers that we pray will be answered in the promise of Christ's return, and we will exchange our tears for shouts of victory. And that's something that I can hope in, and I hope you can too. All right, so let's finish up this uh, final myth, myth four, distress is a form of spiritual immaturity. I I think this is my least favorite one, but the one that I think is the most dangerous for us to start believing. I think this belief is one of the most common and shaming beliefs held by Christians in the response to any sort of mental health concern. The assumption is that we just lack faith, right? Um, just... I just need to pray more, or my favorite, just surrender to God. By saying these things, we are not only assuming and condemning, but we are also neglecting the knowledge of emotional pain. Recently, I've been thinking about this term of surrender. You know, people always say when we're struggling, right, or when something's going wrong, when we have distress of some form, you just got to surrender it to God. You just got to surrender it to God. And recently, I've been thinking, you know, to surrender something, you have to fight, right? There has to be some sort of battle or or uh, war within us or even maybe war with God do we have the capacity in our faith to fight with God I think there's something strong about that to be able to say I don't agree with this but I'm going to fight to understand and in our battle to continually go back to Jesus and ask you know this distress that I'm experiencing what is this? This creates spiritual depth. This creates emotional maturity and spiritual maturity. Not just saying, oh, I just believe God because I believe God and negating what we actually might be feeling, but acknowledging and diving deeper with why am I feeling this way? And it doesn't line up with scripture. So I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep asking those questions. And in that process of constantly going back to God, we learn to surrender to his will. We learn to trust him. And I, I just was reading about that this morning. This idea of faith is trusting even when everything screams the contrary. And so does our emotional distress measure our faith? I would say yes, but maybe in the contrary way, right? Our emotional distress is a way to deepen our faith, not a measurement of our lack of faith. If we believe that it is, we are missing the gospel completely, right? The the assumption here is that our pain and emotional difficulties are a direct result of our lack of faith. I feel that we need to define faith more clearly if that's the case. We understand that faith is the confidence in what we hope for, right? Hebrews 11, and the assurance of what we do not see. So by this definition, we can have faith and struggle at the same time. I like to call this coexisting emotions. I say this a lot in therapy. We can hold space for two different emotions and they can probably be vastly different. I can have hope and pain. I can have grief and sorrow. This is what Paul talks about, right? In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. So we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our flesh. Faith cannot be measured by our experiences or our feelings. 
it is actually by definition the exact opposite, right? It's trusting God even when we do not see or feel that he is working in our midst. When we begin to equate emotional distress with a lack of faith, we default to a workspace salvation. And then it places all the responsibility, right, for healing and wellness and goodness and good behavior, etc., on us. The belief that we have to earn our relationship with God rather than receiving our relationship with God, right? We hijack the central message of the gospel by putting this pressure of perfectionism on us. And to say that faith cannot coexist with emotional distress implies that the state of our brokenness must be ignored. Here's something that I want you to take away with this last one, with this idea of emotional maturity and spiritual maturity. They do connect, right? But I think what we have to start looking at is our emotional maturity is a direct relationship to our spiritual maturity. They go hand in hand. They are um, inseparable. So as we learn to be real with our emotions, we learn depth of faith and trust in God. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3 that he had not obtained full righteousness in Christ and perfection, right? But he says he presses on to make it his own, knowing that his citizenship is in heaven. And that is where we will be transformed completely to the image of God. Scripture tells us, though, in this already not yet, that we can remain steadfast amidst trials, not to deny discouragement or disguise our deficiencies, right? The greatest danger I think we can believe in any of these myths is that it, it creates a potential for shame around our pain, around our emotions, And this is exactly what Satan wants, right? To create distortion within our emotional capacity. And when we don't feel like we can bring our emotions to God, we then believe we don't have faith and that pushes us away from God, right? But here's what I know is that we are all broken, right? And God's word welcomes us to wrestle in this brokenness and find rest, right? And in encouraging you also to seek support through counsel or avenues that don't negate our foundation of faith, nor replace our prayers for direction and peace, but reaching out and allowing others in our community of faith to seek endurance and encouragement together. So I want to close this time by just mentioning a few last things. Maybe you've believed some of these misconceptions and have disregarded your emotional needs or felt judged about seeking support to better steward your emotional health. I want to encourage you, and I know that maybe I'm biased because I'm a therapist, but your feelings matter to God. And we can have faith despite our feelings and support is available through God's word and through others, through professionals and through the church community. Maybe you're not looking for that. Maybe it's more of understanding the ways in which maybe you've judged mental health and those in your life. My hope is that we can be a generation of believers that steps out and starts talking about what we feel and what other people feel without judgment, right? Knowing that we all are human so that we can dispute lies and listen well and acknowledge pain and experiences with those around us. So next week, I'm going to be talking with a special guest, my supervisor and colleague, Jen Robinson-Garin. She is a local therapist in town. We will be discussing top 10 reasons why you should go to therapy. And so if this is kind of 
a new thing for you if you're thinking maybe I need to step out and start looking for support and not be ashamed of what people might think or I'm a Christian and I can't do this. Please listen to the next episode and we will talk in detail about what therapy is and the benefits of therapy um, and the top 10 reasons for why you should go to therapy. So check it out next week. Uh, We will be dropping that episode. Also, another disclaimer, for those of you that may be struggling or you know someone that's struggling or in crisis, I want to also note the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. This is not just for suicide, but just for crisis in general. If you need someone to talk to and you don't feel like you have that community or that safe space, call 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255, or text the crisis hotline at text hello to 74141. Both services are free and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All calls are confidential. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Reframed, the Power of Perspective podcast. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe and drop a comment. To access more content and to join my monthly email list for the latest updates and info, you can visit my website at carlymarcoulier.com. Reframed, The Power of Perspective is a production of Life Audio and the Salem Web Network. If you enjoyed Carly's episode today, we would love it if you left the show a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. It really does help more people like you find the show. This podcast was produced by me, Kelly Givens, and Stephen Sanders, with executive oversight by Stephen McGarvey. To find more faith-filled, encouraging podcasts like this one, just head over to lifeaudio.com. Is life feeling chaotic? I get it. I'm Rachel Wojo, host of the Untangling Life podcast. Don't miss the passionate encouragement and faith-based resources you need to help you clear your head and calm your heart. As Shell says, it feels like Rachel always knows what I need to hear. She keeps it real and is so humble. Her podcast is just the cherry on top. Enjoy Untangling Life with Rachel Wojo on lifeaudio.com or your favorite podcast app now.